The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. If we have not met before, my name is Dave. I am the high school pastor here at TBC, and we are going to be diving into 1 Peter. We started this series a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and so we'll be getting into 1 Peter. So if you are kind of new to the church or new to the Bible, uh, Peter, of course, wrote 1 Peter, big surprise, and, uh, and he is one of the disciples of Jesus. I would say probably the most outspoken of his disciples. And what's interesting about this series we're currently in is we did a series this summer um, called A New Chapter. where We got to do like whole sections, like whole chapters in, in really uh, significant portions of the scriptures. And it was kind of like drinking from a fire hydrant on some Sundays. And this will be more like a water fountain today, we hope. Um, we're only doing seven verses today as we get into 1 Peter. And, uh, and so um, in 1895, H.G. Wells wrote a science fiction novel called The Time Machine. Anyone read this book before? I personally have not. You can lift. There are more of these people in the first service, I think, that read this book for whatever reason. Uh, this, this book, of course, gave life to the concept of time travel. I don't know if he's the first person ever thought of such an idea, but this later would inspire movies like uh, Somewhere in Time and other classics like Back to the Future and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and, uh, and many others, of course. And I would say that if there was such a thing as time travel, it would have to be one of the best superpowers that someone could have. Uh, because just imagine what you could learn and experience if you could go back in time and be there in certain important, important historical moments. Um, I know that in your mind, you, you've got your top five things that you would want to be at. Um, events you'd want to be in in history, whatever time or place it might be. And we really felt this firsthand recently on our trip to Israel back in May and June. And uh, we'd be standing in a place just wishing we could snap our fingers and transport ourselves back to that location, whatever it might be. I think of uh, three locations come to mind. So this is uh, Mount Carmel, where it's believed that the prophet Elijah called down fire from heaven and defeated the prophets of Baal right there. And whenever you're visiting a place like this, you just, you just try to imagine and think, like, it's crazy that this is where this took place. If I could just transport back in time and see it firsthand, how amazing would that be? And then I think of places like the Sea of Galilee, where our group got to go out on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And Mark Wood, one of our elders here at TBC, shared a devotional on the Sea of Galilee. And it's a very surreal experience because you're sitting there on the sea and you're going, I think Mark even said this in his devotional, I don't feel worthy to be doing this right now with you on this boat. And you think about and picture all the times that Jesus must have had these profoundly personal conversations with his disciples right there on that same body of water. And you think to yourself, if I could just transport back and see, how amazing would that be? Then I think of places where they believe the Sermon on the Mount took place. I don't think that building was there back then. But they think this is around the area where it took place along the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And when you think about the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes and Jesus walking through um, those, those points in the Beatitudes, and you think to yourself, how amazing would it be to, to hear him preach and be there in person? And I know for us, we can think about places like this or events like this, and we can be envious and think of the people back then as being more privileged than we are today. But according to Peter, the opposite is true. 
He reminds us that we are more privileged today because we live in a time of fulfillment. So we'll look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, where it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, Peter, in the first nine verses, he has just laid out the greatness of our salvation for these people and for us. If you think that the Christian faith is somehow boring, or if you've grown complacent in your faith possibly, go back and read and meditate this week on the first nine verses of 1 Peter. And just reflect on those and read over those verses over and over and over again because Peter lays out the greatness and the magnitude of our salvation that God has gifted to us. And if someone asked you, why are you a Christian? What would you say? Would, it, would the answer be, well, it just... I have deduced, it just seems to make the most sense, or it just seems like the most rational explanation for how things are. But if you look at verse 3 in in 1 Peter chapter 1, there's a word I want you to focus on. It says, according to his great mercy. That is why I'm a Christian and why you're a Christian. It's according to his great mercy. That is the only reason why anyone can lay claim to being a Christian, a follower of Christ. So Peter says, concerning this salvation, he's referring back to those first nine verses. So there were prophets in the past who they predicted the coming Messiah and the grace that would be offered through him and his sacrifice. And these prophets would, would wonder, of course, about who is this person who's going to come and how is he going to come and what's going to happen to him and through him. Here it says, it refers to sufferings and glories. Of course, they would, if you look at the narrative of the Jewish people, they'd be confused about what that would mean because they were expecting all glory and no suffering. But we see here in in these first uh, few verses that the sufferings and the glories, they're, they're tied together, of course, with the cross and the resurrection, him ascending to be with the Father. And so for the ones receiving this letter of 1 Peter, the recipients here, they may long for a different time, a previous time when when God was speaking through prophets. But the generation receiving this letter, Peter says, you're even more privileged than the prophets who made these predictions. Because the prophets, they simply just heard about the coming Messiah, but this generation, they got to see him firsthand. So the prophets would have been jealous of them And how do we know that? Well, Jesus says over in Matthew 13, he says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So Jesus is standing in front of these people in Matthew 13 and he is saying, listen, the prophets would have been jealous of you, envious of you. They never got to see what you're seeing right here before you. They were told what was to come. And of course, it would have been exciting for them to get these revelations from God in this way. But it also had this built-in disappointment because they wouldn't get to witness it. And according to later on in 1 Peter, we'll see, they had some understanding about that. 
that they're not going to be able to witness fully what is being explained to them and they're prophesying about. Now, we might look at, at Peter's generation with jealousy because they, of course, witnessed Christ coming in the flesh, but we also stand privileged because we have the Holy Spirit today. And we stand upon a mountain of 2,000 years of church history. So if Isaiah could have traveled in time, he would have gladly traveled to the first century or maybe even the 21st century. Look down at verse 12. It was revealed to them, meaning the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. As these prophets, as they search and they inquire, it's revealed to them that the Messiah is going to come, not in their generation, but a future generation. And in their teaching and in their writing, they would be, they'd be serving a future generation. They were aware in some way that they'd be serving some future generation far off, instead of themselves. Now again, we might be jealous of the prophets, but he says the prophets are jealous of you. And you might say, okay, well, well, what about the angels? Surely we can be jealous of the angels, right? I mean, they get to live in the throne room of God, of heaven. They get to run on important errands for God, like shutting the mouths of lions for Daniel or telling Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, that she's going to have a baby. They get to do some important things, so surely we can be jealous of the angels, but look what Peter says. He says that angels long to to look in, to peer in to the good news of God's grace and mercy coming to humanity. You and I, we look at God's grace and we sometimes yawn. The angels look into it and they're astonished. They're perplexed. They're impressed by it. Now, why is that? Well, this might be surprising, but God doesn't offer the same grace to the angels that he offers to humanity. You know, we might see these angels as these like higher privileged beings, and in one sense that's true, but they're also also jealous of the relationship between God and mankind. Whenever we look at passages in Scripture that describe the fall of Lucifer, who, and who became Satan later on, and one-third of the angels who fell, they became demons, of course, it seems like their rebellion was final. How do we know this? Well, if you look over in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I don't see anything in there indicating that God allows the angels to be repentant. And over in the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 19, James is talking about, he says, okay, you believe God is one. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. They're terrified. We also see it over in the Gospels where the demons often know who Jesus is before anyone else knows who he is. But it doesn't appear like their, their knowledge of him ever becomes a saving faith. Hebrews chapter 2 says, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big theological word that means to avert the wrath of God with a gift. And that gift, of course, is Jesus. So Jesus did not come as fully God and fully angel. But he came as fully God and fully man. Why? So he can be a faithful high priest. He can be the mediator between God and mankind. And once these angels fell away from God, there was no opportunity for redemption or forgiveness or grace. That's not the case with humanity. Now listen, I'm not downplaying the role of angels because they have some important roles, some really important roles. The Bible tells us that they are, they are messengers, they're protectors, they're worshipers, and they're warriors. In 2 Kings 19, there's one angel that wipes out 185,000 Assyrians in one night. That's one angel against 185,000 people. That does not sound like our perception of angels. A chubby baby angel playing a harp while sitting on a cloud. Those pictures don't really match up. But as great as angels are and as important as they are, God didn't send Jesus for the angels. Christ comes and he he dwells among humans to live this perfect life and die this gruesome death in our place. And he offers that grace and mercy to us. And the angels don't get that opportunity. You know, some people ask the question, well, how, how can a good God send anyone to hell? And maybe the angels are asking a different question. How can a good God allow anyone into heaven? Because they see the holiness of God firsthand. They see the splendor of God. They see the majesty of God firsthand. And they know his perfection. And they know about us. They know how unholy we are. They know how unholy and imperfect we are. And they might be asking the question, how can God allow any of them in to be with him? So as they look in at this gospel, the gospel of grace and mercy that that God offers to us in his son, it says the angels, they long for it. They look into it. They peer into it, and they're astonished. The prophets would be jealous of us. The angels are jealous of us. Maybe you are here this morning and you've just grown complacent or just bored in your faith. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Think of what the angels think of your faith and the grace and mercy offered to you. We don't think of it like that. We think of the angels are in heaven with God. They're in his presence. And in one sense, they are these higher beings In another sense, they're looking at humanity and they're jealous. And they're perplexed, they're astonished. How How might that change the way in which you and I see the grace and mercy that God has given to us? No matter how difficult life might be or how oppressive the culture around us might become concerning our faith, we are privileged to live in this time when Christ has been revealed and the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift. 
So the next section here in verse 13, Peter's going to help us answer the question, how do we live as aliens and strangers in this world? Look at verse 13 where it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In the English uh, Standard Version translation of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, if you go forward in 1 Peter, you're going to see a, a, a phrase in, in chapter 2, verse 11, where it says, it refers to sojourners and exiles. Other translations say aliens and strangers. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, elect exiles, So exile means stranger. So there's a sense in which we as Christians are going to seem a little strange to those around us. Another way to say it is is resident alien. Now listen, I am a resident alien of Texas. A resident alien, they live here, but they're not from here. So back many years ago, over 20 years ago now, when I first moved to Texas, I'll admit, I had a little bit of a culture shock when I first came to Texas because it was, it was just different. You know, some things were, were strange to me, like girls driving trucks or girls wearing cowboy boots or anyone wearing cowboy boots. I mean, chicken fried steak, we don't have that back where I'm from. Friday night lights, we have that, but they're a bit dimmer where I'm from. I mean, homecoming mums? Whose idea was that? And so things were just, there were some things that were just a bit strange to me when I first moved here. And and some things I think can still be that way. But a resident alien, when they're living in a certain culture, things will seem kind of strange to them. And the culture around them, they'll seem, it goes both ways. The culture will seem strange to us, will seem a little strange to the culture. And there's really three ways in which Christians can view themselves in our world. And I got this from a pastor. I can't remember which one it was, though. And uh, the first is complete aliens. This is a person that just totally disengages, and they, they live in a, a bit of a Christian bubble, an enclave, and they kind of pull away from everyone and, and just want to be protective and protect their, 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 uh, their faith that way. And so someone who maybe pulls away and disengages might be considered a complete alien, and then there's someone that might be considered a tourist. This is someone who just, they identify as being a Christian, but they just are kind of passing through the world and consuming experiences. And they want to really walk both sides of the fence, and they really want to you know, take it all in, but, but also somehow maintain the fact, the idea that they're a Christian. And so they pass through as a tourist. And then lastly, there's resident aliens. This is someone who, they live here, and, and they put down roots, and they engage. They want to engage people. They want to think outreach and living on mission and in their neighborhood, their place of work, wherever it might be. But there's also this sense where they recognize, I live here, but I'm not from here. I live here, but this isn't my home. And this is how I think we have to live in the world that we find ourselves in. And so how do we learn to live this way? I think Peter gives us some great insight as to how we do this. 
in this, this, these couple of verses. First, he says, prepare your minds for action. Now, some translations say, it's a weird picture. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, back then, they, they wore these long robes that would hang around down by their feet. And so if they had to run, they would take the back of the robe and pull it forward, forward and, and then tuck it into the belt in front of them. And now they're ready to take off and they're ready for action. They're ready to, to take off and run. If they didn't do this, of course, they might trip, fall, stumble, and would look really clumsy. So when Peter says this, it simply means pull, pull your thoughts together. Tie up the loose ends of your mind and be disciplined in how you think. You know, we're, we're accustomed to preparing our bodies for action, right? Whether it's working out in some capacity. But what about our minds? This would be to center, to center our minds on the return of Christ. And whenever we do that, it has a way of drowning out distractions. You know, Christians, we are to be a thinking people. But I think instead, at times, we are a distracted people. But if we're going to engage those around us, we've got to be a thinking people. People that prepare your minds. And then he says, be sober-minded. Now, we often associate, we of course associate the word sober with someone who's drunk. We associate with sobriety with alcohol, other substances. But think about how drunkenness affects every aspect of our body. Well, of course, it's going to cloud our judgment. It's going to slow our reflexes. It's going to provoke things we wouldn't normally do. And so this includes physical drunkenness, but it's also more than that. Because at times we can get drunk on the patterns and the philosophies of the world. We don't, we don't see clearly or think clearly. Another way to say it, I think Peter is saying, be self-controlled. Yeah, I, I'm not sure we see that as a virtue anymore. You know, being self-controlled. I mean, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit listed over in Galatians. Well, today we might think of it's, it's more virtuous to let our passions or our anger just kind of run wild. You know, because that, that person, they, they stand for something and let everyone else know about it. But what about the idea of, of being self-controlled? That's also a virtue. And so Peter says, be sober-minded, be, be self-controlled. Then he says, set your hope on future grace. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see the first two phrases, prepare your minds for action or be sober-minded, those are modifier phrases that describe the way in which we should set our hope. So there's a way in which you go about setting your hope on this this future grace, and you do it by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And it's interesting because the grace mentioned here seems future. We often think of grace as something, you know, back in the past when I first came to know Jesus. And that is true. You experience grace there as well. But there's also a sense in which we're going to receive grace. There's future grace for us to be had. And so we receive it in the past. We get it in the present. 
and we're going to receive it in the future. So what is distracting us from setting our hope on this future grace? Right now, what are the things at the forefront of your mind, in my mind and heart, that are distracting us from setting our hope on this future grace that God wants us to focus on? The big idea here is that obedience needs to be premeditated. Like we make plans for it. Like we do it intentionally and purposefully. And then in verses uh, 14 to 16, we find the big theme for the whole series, make us holy. And he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your, your former ignorance, meaning before you come to know Christ, we didn't, there was a time when we didn't see things as we see them now. If you came to know Christ later in life, I know you can relate. There's a time in your life where you're like, you have no idea who I used to be. You should have seen me 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And you recognize that that was a time that you just didn't, you didn't see God for who he was. You didn't see Jesus for who he was. And now you do. If you're like raised up in the church and you don't know a time where you didn't, wouldn't say you were a believer, you may not be aware of this, but go ask somebody. Go ask somebody with a story and say, hey, walk me through. What was it like in your previous state? And so Peter says, there was a time when you were formerly ignorant before we know Christ. And so that's the negative command. He says, do not be conformed. But the positive command is, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I know whenever we use the word holy in any context, it has all kinds of everybody, everybody gets triggered. You know, everyone thinks, you know, the way that word was used. And listen, I understand if you grew up in a church tradition where maybe this word was used in a way that was not biblical or used in a way that was almost kind of weaponized against you as it related to certain behaviors and stuff like that. And I understand all that. How it might make you feel to hear that word in, in any context. But what does it mean to be holy? We often might use the word negatively or sarcastically. You know, that person, they think they're holier than thou. They think they're better than everybody else. Or if we hear it mentioned in church, we think it's only about just, you know, following some rules. It's about morality and behavior when we think of that word. But when Peter uses it in, in verse 16, he says... Look at the text. It says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So where is he quoting from? Well, he's quoting from over in Leviticus. But if you go over to Leviticus, you'll see that a large part of the book is devoted to describing like things and items that are used in the worship of God at the temple. Leviticus refers to things like you know, tables and pots and other items that are used in worship at the temple. And that's not in reference to morality. So what would, what would a moral table even look like? Well, it simply means that it's, it's separate or it's, it's set apart for exclusive use. So what makes a table holy is that it belongs to God. It's been consecrated and set apart and separated in its use for the service of God. So what makes me, are you holy, is that you belong to God. Now that carries with it some implications for behavior because Peter says here 
you also be holy in all of your conduct. But we have to understand identity first. Because if you go over to look at verse 16, the verb tense there, you shall be holy, is, is passive and tense, meaning I've heard it described, it's, it's like breathing in to receive air. And so our becoming holy is something we receive as, as a gift from him. In the same way that you and I open our mouth and we breathe in, air comes in. And in some sense, through no effort of our own, in the same way, this is how the holiness of God is bestowed upon us, positionally, as it relates to our salvation. So whenever we think about holiness, I know many of us only think about rules. But we have this way of detaching these rules from relationship. Now listen, every relationship has rules. We agree? If you have friendships, and I hope that you do, you know that those friendships have some rules. And if you violate some of those rules in friendship, you're not really gonna have many friends. And for those of you that are married, you know that marriage has some rules. It's got some rules. And there are certain things that if you do in a marriage, there's a chance that the person may not stay. And so we, we, we recognize that, 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 that friendship has rules and marriage has rules, but we recognize in those relationships that the relationship is central. We know the rules are there, but we know the relationship is the real reason, the real deal. We don't think about human relationship like, yeah, there's just all these rules in the relationship. But when it comes to God, for some reason, we think of God in this other way. We forget that, we forget about the relationship part, and we think, yeah, I don't really do that whole following Christ thing anymore. There's just too many rules. We forget that the relationship with him is supposed to be central. Yeah, there's, there's some rules, but the rules are there to reinforce the relationship, to protect the relationship, to give the relationship life, to find joy in the relationship in the same way that you might find in a marriage or a friendship. So my wife and I, we got married back in 2003, which to me sounds like a long time ago. I know not for some of you here, but um, we got married back in 2003, and um, I always think of this picture as it relates to our salvation. So what if my wife and I went through our uh, dating uh, life relationship and then engagement and then we had the wedding and then we go on the honeymoon. What if we come back to that apartment we're about to move into and as we're ascending up the staircase to that second floor apartment, what if I just looked at her and said, hey, that was a, that was a great trip. I've got my own apartment across town. I'll see you around. I mean, how is she going to react if, if I say that to her? What about my friends and family that paid all that money to attend the wedding? They would stage an intervention. They'd want all their gifts back. They would, they would come and say, Dave, I, I don't think you understand what it means to be married. When, when, you, when you marry someone, your, your life changes. You orient your life around their life and their life around your life. Your, your new relationship changes everything. You join your lives together when you marry someone. 
But then what if I said, well, yeah, but that's just, that's just rules. That's just legalism. But this is how many of us treat Christ, I think. We have this experience, or we say we surrender, we make a commitment, but then we live apart from him. He has no bearing on our lives. That's like having a wedding, but there's no marriage. So you see, we have to see holiness as intensely relational. Because if you only see it as just a bunch of rules, then you're going to go either the way of rebellion, which would be, I've done all the mental calculations, and the way I see it is this is just following a bunch of rules. I want no part of that. And you're going to rebel against the whole thing. Or you might go even worse, the way of religion, which is you see everything as these rules, you still see it as rules, and you just see it as following some holy code to follow, to, to, to earn favor with, with God and other people, and that's all you see it as. And there's no joy, there's no life, there's no vitality. And both of those, so rebellion and religion, both of those oppose the gospel. So the opposite of being holy is to simply live for yourself. To not recognize there's any relational component to your life with God or anyone else. You know, years ago, Stuart Briscoe, um, a guy, he was a preacher from England, and he went to, I think, plant a church or uh, pastor a church in Wisconsin, I believe, for many years. And then he came here to preach. Um, he had a friendship with Gary for many years here at TBC, and he came here and preached numerous times at TBC. And every time he would preach, there was always one thing I would think, I'm going to use that one day. I'm going to, that's a great illustration. I'm going to use that illustration one day. And he, he furthered this picture for me of marriage. I'll never forget it. He said, he said, whenever as a pastor, whenever he does a wedding or whenever I do a wedding, what do you do? You stand in front of the congregation, you do the wedding ceremony, and at the very end, there's this moment that's just very, very strange to me personally. Because my, the first time I ever did a wedding, the moment at the end of the wedding where the, the, the couple turns to the crowd and the pastor stands before the crowd and the couple and they say, by the power vested in me, I declare this couple married. And my first time to do that, I just thought, do I really have this kind of power? That just feels strange. But we declare this couple married. And Stuart said, you know, I declare this couple married. I just, I just declare it. I say it. And, but here's the reality. They're going to spend the rest of their lives becoming married. They spend the rest of their lives becoming what they already are. And this is what God does for us. Because for a believer, he, he declares us dead to sin. God, as if, as if God stands up, he declares us dead to sin and alive to himself. So that every time you and I struggle with sin or temptation, we've got to go back and remember our identity, who we are. The Christian life is about becoming who you are. Wayne Grudem writes, to be holy as God is holy includes a full and pervading holiness that reaches to every aspect of our personalities. It involves not only avoiding outward sin, but also maintaining an instinctive delight in God and his holiness as an undercurrent of heart and mind throughout the day. 
want you to focus on those two little phrases. Yes, it does involve avoiding outward sin, but there's also this delight in God and delighting in the relationship that he offers to us. And you've got to keep those things together because you can't just see it as it's just a bunch of rules and there's no relationship. You've got to see the relationship as central. And so, yes, some things are right. There are some things that are wrong. There are moral absolutes in the universe, but it's because God delights in what reflects his character and he hates what's contrary to it. I also want you to go back and look. There's a little phrase that Peter uses. He says, as obedient children, another relational phrase. Children have this desire to imitate their parents, to emulate them. In a similar way, Christians, we should, we should delight in imitating God because he is our father. And that's the kind of relationship that he wants to have with you. And it's an intimate, personal relationship. So do we see God that way? Do we see God in that personal way? We're going to move into a time of communion. And we do this for two reasons. We do it because Jesus told his disciples to do this as an act of remembrance, but also as an act of proclaiming his death until he returns. So in John 6, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So on that night that he was arrested... Jesus is sharing this meal with his disciples in that, in that upper room. And over in the Gospel of Luke, we read, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The scriptures also say the cup represents his blood that was shed for us on our behalf. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Luke 22, it says, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, remembering me. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a life that we could not live and to die a death that we deserved and then to resurrect and live glorified this resurrection life that we'll one day receive. God, we just want to praise you this morning for your holiness and praise you for your goodness and praise you for your perfection. As we look at ourselves and look at 
the world around us, we know there is unholiness. We know there is imperfection. And we just want to praise you for your holiness and for your perfection. God, we also pray that that holiness and perfection would not drive us away from you. Because of the sacrifice that you made on the cross, you made a way for us to come in fellowship with you and to be right with you and be made right with you. God, help us to see you as that kind of father, to see you as that kind of gracious king and to receive your grace and mercy today. We pray this in your name, amen.